Last month, we completed a successful Kickstarter campaign to keep Fantastic Fiction at KGB running for at least another six years. We wish to thank our gold supporters, whose reward was to have their names mentioned on our podcast. Huge thanks to Jake Mariah, Martin Bernstein, Jim Freund, Kevin J. Maroney, Naomi Novik, Hesh Rothman, Jordan Hammersley, Diane Turnshik, Valya Dujits Lubescu, Karen K.G. Anderson, Jessica Wolf, and Nancy Lambert, and to all our many supporters without whom this series would not exist, thank you. Now on to the show. Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel, and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. We're going to get started... How's, every, how's everyone doing tonight? Yeah. All right. I'm Matt Kressel. I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow. We've been doing it forever. Um, it only seems like it. No, it doesn't seem like forever. So, um, all we ask is that you, it's always free, by the way, but all we ask is that you uh, buy a drink, uh, tip your bartenders, and uh, you know, we have books for sale with Word Bookstore in the back. Uh, tonight we have Icon. And uh, stories from the wait. What is your title? Inner City. Inner City. And Karen also has other other books for sale. So at the break, you can get you can get your books uh, signed. Um, Before we start with our readers, just want to announce the upcoming readers for uh, next month: Gregory Frost, Rajan Khanna, August sixteenth. Come on, you can do better. September 20th, Catherine Vaz and Chris Sharp. Yay. October 18th, James Patrick Kelly and Kaya Shante Wilson. Right. November 15th, Grady Hendricks and David Rice. Right. December 20th, N.K. Jemison and our favorite guest, TBA. <laughs> January 17th, Joseph Hemmelreich and somebody else, also named TBA, not related. <laughs> Um, February 21st, John Kessel and Petronel Van Arsdale. So we got a nice lineup coming up for you in the next few months. I hope you'll join us for that. Um, and just once again, thank you uh, to those who donated to the Fantastic Fiction Kickstarter. We raised after uh, Kickstarter and, and the uh, PayPal takes the fees. We got about $8,900. So we're able to continue for six more years, which is amazing. And we're also able to pay, our, we, we give the authors a little stipend. We're able, able to give them a little bit more. So thank you guys for that. And uh, for those of you who donate, thank you. For those of you who, uh, who donated to the uh, specific tier where you get your name mentioned on the podcast, we're going to do that this month. So. Uh, that's coming soon. Um, our first reader is Karen Hewler, 
Karen Hewler's stories have appeared in over 100 literary and speculative magazines and anthologies. From Conjunctions to Clark's World to Weird Tales, as well as a number of best of anthologies. She has received an O. Henry Award, been a finalist for the Iowa Short Fiction Award, the Bellwether Award, the Shirley Jackson Award for Short Fiction twice, and a bunch of other near misses. She has published four novels and three story collections, and this month Aqueduct Press released her novella In Search of Lost Time about a woman who can steal time. Here's Karen Hewlett. Thank you so much, Matt and Alan. It's such a delight to be here. And um, I am going to read from a novella about a woman named Hildy, who is going through chemo for cancer of the tempora, which is a totally made-up area of the brain, uh, which helps the body experience time. And as she goes through, as she starts chemo, she suddenly starts noticing auras. Uh, she teaches. Um, adult ed kind of classes, and she notices these auras in class and sees uh, and actually takes a sample from one of her students, Joey. So um, I'm going to skip the first couple of pages and, and jump into uh, the next stage of the story. So she's just sampled uh, Joey. And she is suddenly approached by uh, a man who, and she tries to sample his aura. She lifted a jar to his aura, feeling it, and he jumped back. I know what that means, he said, and you're not taking it from me, not one minute, not one second. She stiffened. Taking it from you, she repeated slowly. Of course. He laughed harshly, his mustache bobbing up and down, his rubbery face producing lines that lifted up his cheeks. If you remove something, there's less of it at the source. No, isn't that a law of physics or something? She had stolen time from Joey. How could that be true? She liked Joey. She didn't want to harm him. She didn't want to harm anyone. She had been curious. Was it terrible to be curious? She swallowed painfully. How much time have I taken? His eyes were dark and bright, and she felt a kind of interest coming from him. He found her interesting. What, her stupidity? Was that amusing? Depends on the container, he answered finally. His eyes slid down to the jar she held. Probably only minutes with that. Don't you feel how long it affects you? Can't you tell? She hadn't noticed how long it was. She had been so struck by that brief feeling of health and buoyancy and youth. Joey's minutes, she now knew. A brief visit to his life. It had been so vivid. If it was only minutes, what harm would come of getting a few more from him, or from the babies in the playground, or anyone? It was just a minute or two. Her eyes drifted away from him, and when they came back to his odd face with what must be, she was absolutely certain, a fake mustache, she saw him glinting at her, his teeth showing between his lips. What's the harm, he asked just a little bit here and there. No one will even miss it. And I can find a market for you. He had a sly, artificial smile. We can work together on this. He held out his hand. Michael P., that's what everyone calls me. P for pleasant, profitable. Nicknames can be tricky. Hildy, she said. He nodded as if he already knew that. Well, Hildy, 
You have a special talent. Not everyone can do what you can do. I, for instance, can see a little of what you see, but I can't touch it. There are others, of course, who are like you. They're not all honorable or nice, so you have those sudden deaths of athletes and so on. Their hours emptied out so there was nothing left. I'm sure you wouldn't do that. Enough of that, and people are bound to get suspicious. But there's a market for time. There are people who are down to their own last hours, and they'll pay plenty to have some more. A mix of hours will work, boys and girls and young and not so young. I can get you connected with the market. It would take you years to do anything on your own, and not everyone is so easy to work with. Someone had once told Hildy that you could tell if someone was lying by watching their ears. She hadn't been told what to watch for, but she looked at Michael P.'s ears and knew he was lying, though not what he was lying about. He lifted a hand to touch his ear when he saw her looking there. He took his hand down. What do you say? I don't know. You've given me something to think about. I didn't even know what it all meant, and now I have to figure out what to do about it, if what you're saying is true. His own eyes looked at the absence of her eyebrows. Of course it's true. You can steal as many healthy hours as you please for yourself. And you can be rich, rich and healthy, not so bad. If he was lying, though, maybe he was lying about stealing time. Maybe it wasn't as bad as it sounded. Maybe he was trying to frighten her. At the back of her mind, too, there was a little voice reminding her that she might need the time eventually. It was hard to have cancer and be noble. And if she took just a little bit, she wouldn't really harm anyone. Who would miss a few minutes? Hildy told herself it would be foolish to make a decision without knowing how much was true. She would have to run tests, so she got more jars from the store, jars with flip lids, press-on lids. She figured even screw-ons would work, but the jars themselves had to be lightweight and silent, no noisy snapping or popping to get anyone's attention. She had a feeling that there were both truth and lies in what Michael P. said, and she had to find out for herself. She made some experimental runs. She took time from people on lines, from people waiting for buses, from people picking up children after school, from the children on their way home, from cashiers as they lowered their heads, once from the combined aura of a couple kissing on a park bench. She labeled them with quick notes about where she found them and found this out. For a little while, she understood French. She couldn't stop thinking about horses. She felt like running and skipping. She felt aroused. She felt like crying. Each jar contained not only time, but the associations of time. And she found, too, that hours held memories, and she would be suddenly stricken by losses, or buoyed by joys, or desperately, paralyzingly worried, or fearful for very good reasons. The hours were not clean, nor could she tell where the good hours in any person's life were, at least not yet. She started labeling where she had filled the jars, from the left side, right, front, back, hoping there was a system to it, an organizing principle. Some sniffs had more of a story to them. Some had more of a mood. She had sniffed one jar and found herself remembering she was two months behind on rent, which wasn't true, but she had reached for her checkbook. She would have to learn to separate what the jars did from her own thoughts. Some of the donor's memories were sharp and some were well-worn. She had rows of jars now in her living room and masses of notes about what she was figuring out. 
She tried to sniff only half a jar so she could label their usefulness, but it was hard to open a lid and not have it all spill upwards. So she got jars with nozzles and spouts and was a, a bit more successful. And she tried to hold two jars at once as she collected time so she could test one and label the other, a large jar and a small jar. It was hard to be inconspicuous. She was stopped once or twice by suspicious people on the street, and a young man knocked a jar out of her hand when he turned and found her waving it behind him. Because the aura was all around people, it was much safer to fill it behind their backs. She began to switch most of her research to the evening or the night, but the quality of the time she got then was different. She found that the jars she filled in the middle of the night had a torpid texture to them, a sense of waiting, a drawing in of the self. They were syrupy. She called them gray time, and they were immobilizing. If she, if she sniffed one, she had to sit and wait it out. These hours seemed slow and sticky. Nothing productive could happen in gray time, the hours that felt the most isolated, the most dreaded. So did auras shift depending on time of day? She came home one day to find some of her jars missing. She knew exactly how many she had and where they were. To find five gone made her heart thud. She looked out her window down to the street, and there was Michael P. across the street, looking up at her. He nodded, crossed the street, and buzzed her apartment. She let him up. He looked over at the row of bottles and then held up a plastic shopping bag, lumpy with jars. I thought that would get your attention, he said with satisfaction. I can pay you for these, you know. I can steal them, or I can pay you for them. Which is to say, we can work together, or we can work against each other. I can be a good friend, he added, lowering his bag in his voice. I can help you get whatever you need, whenever you need it. She thought of the latest scan she'd had, showing that the cancer seemed to be receding. Were the scans good because she'd sniffed a good time before she had them? She frowned. Were the jars of time influencing her mind and her body, suggesting things to her or changing her? Could she accidentally sniff the jars of a man who didn't yet know he was dying and therefore take a little of his dying and mix it in with hers? She asked Michael P. about it, and he shrugged. Whatever you take, you're adding to your own hours. As long as you don't take the hour, the minute, the second someone dies, you'll experience that stolen hour and move on. It won't change what you have. But of course, there have been no experiments on this, no research. As the medical profession says, we, we rely on anecdotal evidence. He smirked. She had two rows of jars on a table in her living room. He ran his hand along the tops of the jars. I like the labels, he said, very helpful. He picked one up and read it. 8.30 p.m., young man, drunk, pleasant. And he hadn't seemed drunk at first, she said, but he twirled around when I passed him and stumbled. Would it make me drunk if I tried it? She resented Michael P.'s intrusion, but she was desperate for information. She had to ask whether she could trust him or not she would have to tally what he said against her own impressions. Depends on whether you grab the present hour, he said. Our hours are mixed all around us, the hours we've lived. We hold on to them, though I wonder if an Alzheimer's patient has true hours or imagined hours stuck around her. I met one who always seemed to be in a dream. How do you know about this? I never knew about this. He smirked. It's like a secret club with a secret sign. Only a few people have your gift. Of course, there are entry points, and cancer treatment is one of them. The cells in your head get changed and distort perception, revealing things the healthy cells can't sense. Some hallucinogens will do it, but it's temporary, and not everyone believes what they see. 
he shrugged. If it wears off, then of course they ignore it. But there are a few people who test it out the way you did. A bunch of us keep our eyes open. I was lucky enough to see you at it. And if I gave you jars, how would you pay me? Oh, I'd give you some money. Say $5 a jar. Look at what you've already got. His hand swept the table, just in this room alone. It wasn't even much of an offer. If she counted it all up, she, she'd have maybe $100 and an uneasy feeling. I may need the time myself, she said finally. She might as well call it time, even if she wasn't sure about it. She might as well play on his terms. You can always get more, can't you? And I have no doubt you'll grab and sniff whenever you take some time, like taking samples at a supermarket, no? Isn't that what you women do? He was getting impatient. He started opening doors and drawers, looking for more bottles. Stop that, she said sharply. He spun around to her. If we're to work together, I have to know what you've been up to. And we'll work together, he said. You need me. I can help you. I don't need any help. And did you know how thin your aura is? You're not well, are you? The jars are for you, I think. You're running out of time. It was a guess, but even as she said it, she felt it was a good guess. She had glimpsed her own aura in the mirror. It was as shaky as his, but there was more of it. Or maybe it was just brighter. And that's why she thought there was more. He froze. His eyes got deeper. They withdrew into themselves. Hildy could feel the hostility flare out from him. He relaxed his face a little and tried to be conciliatory. Well, yes, I imagine my aura is about like yours, a little the worse for wear. I've had my own medical bouts, and I wouldn't mind buying a few jars from you now and then, mostly now. He gave a little humph at that, a little ironic throat noise, and then he walked to the window, looked, down, looked out, turned around and said, I'll give you a day to think about it. Don't worry about me, he said, although she wasn't worried. I'm looking out for you. Some of the others are not as nice as I am. He walked to the door. The others? There are others who want to buy my bottles? Some of them will just take your bottles. Not everyone is nice. I know the bedazzler is on your trail. Don't have anything to do with her. And he left. She walked over to the window, watching him cross the street and pass a woman on the corner. They nodded to each other, and then the woman also left. Once, lying in bed with Noah, she had asked if he would leave his wife for her. He had frowned. She needs me more than you do, so no. But I need you. Her heart had plummeted. She had promised herself never to ask the question, and yet it had leapt out of her mouth like a lizard. He smiled and relaxed. His hair was like a halo. No, you want me. If I thought you needed me, I wouldn't come back. It would be impossible, satisfying two women's needs. But we have a special and wonderful and free. It's the freedom that keeps me coming back. We choose each other over and over. Isn't that better than need? She had thought about that for months and months. She'd been battling impermanence all her life. Her affair with Noah was punctuated by the shadow of the end, even at the beginning, even in the middle. Had that been a lure for her? Had she found it made Noah more exotic, more lavish? If Noah had been free, she frowned. Her image of Noah immediately became less electric. If Noah had been free, what? Would she have left him? Was she determined to mark any relationship by the loss of the relationship? The minutes drove by. Everything, of course, heading to its end. Was that what she had done? Created a relationship that always ended? He always went home and always began again. He came back. 
She was the impermanence, not him. Perhaps it was a result of Michael P.'s reference to the bedazzler that Hildy now often felt she was being followed as she sampled time, being watched. She thought she saw the edges of people moving back from windows, disappearing into doorways. Her own long legs with the red-heeled boots hurried up, trying to catch a better glimpse. She was sure it was a woman. She was sure it was the bedazzler. A few days later, as she sat in a cafe, a woman slid into the seat opposite her. She had full hair, streaked white on top of brown, falling to her shoulders. She wore cat-eyed glasses with sparkles on the rim. She had dangling bracelets that glittered as they moved. Do you mind if I join you, she asked, although it didn't sound much like a question. She smiled, but it was merely muscles moving. There was nothing relaxing or inviting about that smile. Her fingers were thin and crowded with rings that also sparkled. There was a powder with glitter that had been applied across her cheekbones. She was in her 50s, Hildy guessed, not far from her own age. I'd like to make an offer, she said. It's not the same offer as Michael P's. I don't want to buy or sell time, but I'm looking for someone and I've lost the trail. I need you to sample time from certain persons. Try to find the time that tells me what I need to know. Hildy snapped to attention. She was interested in spite of herself. She was being asked to help, and what she was asking for was memories, not time. That didn't seem so problematic. A detective, she said, interested. It might be fun, but who are these people? What did they take? Do I want to experience their memories? Wouldn't it be bad? She saw herself sifting through people's memories, their experiences, finding out the lost bits and perhaps restoring them to the rightful owner. It was startling and innovative. A whole new world opened before her, filled with discoveries. It occurred to her that her ability might help her find out certain things about Noah, whether he'd been true to her, what his love was really like. Could she solve mysteries like that? Could she really learn to be that adept, that selective? It was dizzying. They took my child the bedazzler said and leaned back against her seat and stared at Hildy who felt a little trapped. How could she refuse to help find a child? Who did? Hildy whispered. Michael P. Or one of his associates. He's always doing dirty work for other people, but it doesn't matter in the end who did it. What matters is getting her back again. She reached into her bag, a loose canvas bag with pink fake gems on it. She brought out a photo of a toddler and a tiara. That's her. That's Molly. She's been gone for two months now, stolen out of her bed one night. And I know it was Michael P. He has a habit of leaving his fingerprints around. What? Hildy frowned. He leaves fingerprints at various crime scenes. That what, that's what he gets hired for. They give him material someone innocent has handled, and he takes their fingerprints and puts them at the crime scene. I don't know how many people he sent to jail, innocent people. You have to be careful around him. Then why would he leave his own fingerprints to throw me off? She shrugged. Of course I'd know it was him, and of course I won't go to the police. Why not? I don't have a good relationship with them, she said. She glared at Hildy as if it was Hildy's fault, and I have to keep a low profile anyway. He's left my fingerprints at various scenes. I don't want the police checking into me at all. Hildy felt ridiculously unprepared for all of this. A missing child, stolen fingerprints, how was she to judge whether the bedazzler was any more honest than Michael P? She had stumbled into a world where she was at a loss for the guideposts. 
I don't know, she says tentatively. I don't think I can help you. I'm a little lost myself. I'm trying to figure out what's happening to me. She tried to sound a little stupid. She looked at the bedazzler with her eyes open wide. It was hard to play the ingenue at 49, however. The bedazzler smirked. No good, she said, leaning forward. She put one jeweled hand on top of Hildy's hands. The cut stones caught Hildy's attention. She glanced at the little kaleidoscopic flashes of pink and blue and silver and gray. They were pleasant and had none of the confusion caused by the bedazzler's words. Her companion moved her other hand so that she clasped Hildy's hand completely, one hand on top, one below. She gave a little squeeze and released it. You shouldn't have to go through this alone. I know someone will be looking for you soon, the kind of man you deserve. I'm sure you can find it if you think about it. She smiled kindly and then looked sad. I know you're having a hard time. I can see you're figuring it out as you go. You're wondering why you should believe me? Why shouldn't you? How many people in your life have asked for help locating a lost child? None, right? And you think, how could you help someone find a child when you know nothing about it? That's why it's true, she said, slipping a ring off her index finger and slipping it on again, off and on. Hildy watched, fascinated. I'll tell you what, the bedazzler said. I'll give you a chance to redeem yourself. You're not making a good impression, you know. Just a little test. Take some of Michael P's time. She grinned and sat back, and then as Hildy sat there stunned, her mind blinking, the bedazzler jumped up and sauntered out with no look back. The bedazzler's story, true or not, stayed in Hildy's mind. A child stolen from its mother, it roused sympathy. Of course it would. She imagined stealthy figures in the night, a hand clapping over a sleeping child's mouth, the terrible moment when the bedazzler realized what had happened, awful. She wondered who the child's father was. Perhaps the bedazzler had a man at home. It amazed her sometimes which women attracted men and which did not. It wasn't that Hildy had forsworn men either now that Noah was gone. Sometimes she harbored hopes for the future, but cancer certainly changed possibilities. Still, on her way home, she began to imagine meeting an intelligent, sympathetic man, someone like Noah, but attached only to her. It was a pleasant daydream. She didn't judge herself for it. The man, the man she imagined was younger than she was, as Noah had been younger. Age didn't matter to him, and he was handsome in a quirky way. His features were a little off balance. The nose had been broken once and sat slightly askew. The eyebrows didn't exactly match. He had a warm smile. His hair stood away from his face. He was capable and relaxed and laughed at the right things. He said it himself. He went through life nose first. Ah, she realized it was Noah. Noah was alive and waiting for her. Think of, thinking of him filled her with anticipation and she realized, until she realized Noah was dead and she was alone. There was no one like this in her life. She would remember it, feel disappointed, and then go on to think of him, again slipping into those thoughts without noticing it. He had a habit of lifting his hand and laying it behind her ear, resting it there, then gently stroking the side of her head and her neck. The weight of his hand was mesmerizing. It stilled her. That hand seemed to have a magic or a subtlety. Sometimes it was a prelude to sex, but not always. Sometimes he would simply find himself near her, in fact, he felt drawn to her, too, as if by invisible threads, and would face her and lift his hand and cup it along the side of her face, back to her ear, the edge of his hand falling onto her neck. What was it called, that turn of the chin bone as it rose up to the ear? There must be a name. The edge of his hand, too, that must have a name, right above the outside of the wrist, all those magical parts coming together, warm and fusing. 
when she got home, she thought for a moment that he would be there and her heart slammed. Of course he wouldn't, she wavered, holding the key right at the lock, and then she went in. But this was strange, the apartment felt different. She knew that he, Noah, hadn't been there, but someone had. She rushed over, she rushed over to the bottles on the table and found that six of them were missing. Michael P., she was certain of it. Couldn't he carry any more than six bottles? Had he forgotten to bring a bag or something? She felt a sting of contempt rising. She couldn't respect him at all. What was he thinking? He didn't even attempt to hide his crime. He really merely moved the remaining bottles around a little, as if she didn't know exactly what she had on the table. She looked at her collection again. She was suddenly exhausted. She took up a bottle labeled E3M. In her system, that meant energy. The 3M meant the male donor was probably around 30. She inhaled deeply through her mouth and nose. That infused her with energy and determination. She could still feel herself, but behind it was a sense of restlessness, determination, self-reliance. She was alive with irritation. These people were playing games with her. If there were games, she had to get ahead of them. She intended to win. She spent the next hour relabeling her bottle, creating a new system. She put some of them together and labeled them H2M. What would H mean to Michael P? She hoped he would think health and be enticed, but these particular jars were gray time. Her knowledge of ores was growing. She now could identify gray time, those slow late night hours, as well as sleeping hours. She was learning to identify the different layers by color and movement. She was getting better at scooping out specific areas of color, figuring out how deep they were. Sometimes one color hid behind another, and the time was contradictory, but she was better at it now. Labels with an extra dash meant jars that had some kind of knowledge in them, time spent on electrical wiring, or fixing a car, or picking a lock. She told herself that she knew the Bedazzler and Michael P. were liars, and therefore she might not actually be stealing other people's time. Maybe she was just stealing memories, but it felt like she was stealing time. She thought of herself as a responsible person. She had done things, of course, which even now made her twinge, but everyone had. She was human. She had followed her own interests, even at the expense of others, but she hadn't pretended that she was innocent. She had accepted her own failures, maybe too readily, maybe too broadly. It was like an exercise routine, developing muscles by repetition. Only here she had developed indifference by continuing to do the things she knew she despised, if only to find a way to live, because ultimately she was determined to live. Thank you. Thank you. And you can buy that novella, it's a novella, right? Yes. Uh, from Karen at right now. <clears throat> We're going to take a 10 minute break, have a drink, buy books from Karen, she'll sign them, buy books from Word, Henry, she'll. Word has books too. Word has, right, right, Word has books, Word has Inner City, which is um, Karen's first collection, and, um, and Genevieve's Icon. So buy books and have them sign them and come back in 10 minutes. Thank you. Welcome back to the second half of Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Our next reader tonight is Genevieve Valentine, who is an author and critic. Her most recent book is the near future spy novel, Icon, which is for sale right there, and you better buy it and make her sign it. 
Her short fiction has appeared in over a dozen best of the year anthologies. <coughs> and a plug, it's going to also be in um, Mad Hatter's and Martera's My Alice in Wonderland anthology come, de come December. She was going to read from that, but she's not tonight instead. It's all right. <laughs> Her comics work includes Catwoman for DC Comics and the Attack on Titan anthology from Kadansha. Her criticism and reviews have appeared in several venues, including the AV Club, the Atlantic, and the New York Times. Please ask her about the new King Arthur movie. <coughs> it's that bad, huh? Not now, Oh my God, okay. incredible. All right, in a good way or a bad way? A bad way. Oh, okay, good. Her reviews and her fashion commentary are legendary. Anyway, please welcome Genevieve Valentine. Definitely ask me about King Arthur, but like after this. Um, okay, this story is called Familiaris, and it is from the anthology The Starlit Wood, which is a collection of fairy tale retellings. This is based on a Bavarian fairy tale called The Wolves, um, which is sort of bizarre even by fairy tale standards. Uh, it begins that a prince and the princess had no child, and the twist is she never wanted any. Uh, that's punished the way you can imagine a fairy tale punishes pretty much everything. Uh, but this is a story about that and other stuff. Uh, this is Familiaris. <coughs> I mean, if you don't want to have one, he says, that single line down the center of his forehead like his face is about to peel. Someday, she says, his hand is too tight in her hand. One of them is sweating. The prince and princess had no child. Eventually, wolves. Long ago, a woman in Bavaria had to peel some potatoes. She had to do the washing. She had to check on the soup that simmered on the stove and was never quite thick enough. She had to watch her smallest child where it lay wrapped near the fire and sweating, and watch her oldest daughter tying back her hair to look finer when she went to trade the day's milk for some woolens from the merchant with the unmarried son. She wanted to tell a story that could lock the door. The prince and princess had no child. The princess insulted a peasant mother as unfaithful for having triplets. As punishment, the princess bore seven sons in seven days. She sent them to be killed. Mothers in stories are hateful and unkind. They never peel potatoes for the soup. The prince found them and saved them and let them grow. And as soon as they were men of 18, they appeared in the feast hall to swallow the princess whole. Wolves, the mother calls them when she speaks of young men. Oldest daughters don't fear much anymore, they don't fear enough, but a wolf can still make a girl pause at the window and glance into the woods, just in case. Fairy tales are collected by the scholars who show up in the center of town with neat coats darned at the cuffs, with pen and ink and paper. But they begin with a woman at the fireside, looking out the open door and fearing the worst. She wants the lock to sit fast, even if it's too late. She wants to make her daughter listen to the story of a princess who couldn't bear children and then suddenly, horribly could who saw only a wolf when her husband forced her to look in her mirror, who was ruined the moment she insulted the farmer because women are doomed if they open their mouths and that mountain's so steep it can ruin a queen. You tell stories because your fears have no easier names. The merchant's son smiles, but he's tall, and when his father has gone to sell near the cathedral, the son offers to show girls the woolens they store upstairs and keeps them there too long. The soup is going to sour any minute, and your daughter needs to come home. How can she have so many, she says, looking at the woman who can barely push the double stroller, one older child dragging on her shirt tail. 
One of them is shrieking. It won't stop. The mother looks like she hasn't slept in a hundred years. Her anger flaps empty and worn out every time she opens her mouth. Her husband says, we should be so lucky. And for a moment, she looks at him like his tongue has turned into a salamander before she remembers that the last time she mentioned she was doing well at work, his smile was thin. That he still hasn't assembled the desk in the room that's supposed to be her office. That she does her work at the dining table as her mother did the darning. He's gotten adamant that they clear it before dinner. We're a family, he says. We should get in the habit to make it easier when we have children. And she thinks about what he looked like the first time he told her he wanted to marry her and what her mother says about the Holy Spirit alive in the home and makes her work disappear. Her stomach goes rancid. He doesn't see it. What's there to see in an empty space? He has an office in a company that matters with windows on two sides. She's gonna go to the doctor and slap her feet in the stirrups and vomit for months and swell and lose her job and her wits in the mud of pregnancy and she'll expel a child from a body that's been wrecked by an intruder. She knows what that's like. She's lived with her husband long enough. She wonders what would happen if she took her hand out of his hand and ran until she dropped. One of the other children is crying now, piercing. She checks to see if her nose is bleeding. The princess was chosen, not born. The prince rode by her parents' hovel with his hand out to her, and the saddle chafed the back of her legs so much she dared not sit before the king and queen. They thought it charming. She kept her hands clasped behind her when she departed. They thought that charming, too. The prince had left a stain on the back of her dress, a small dark spot she clasped her hands over. She'd been foolish and had dressed in white like a bride. He laughed when he saw it and said, that's what happens to a prince with a pretty maid and a long ride. And she said, but I'm a princess now. And he smiled as if she was agreeing with him and not warning him. Seven boys, seven sons. We imagine it. A thousand legends and a thousand songs have taught us to want them. A mythic number that means greatness, that suggests higher purpose, a beautiful whole. Later stories come by to separate them into people, and they take up songs and novels and celluloid and occupy different faces, but fairy tales seldom bother. They're frightening enough as they are. A brother for every day of the week, all healthy, enough grown sons to fill the doorway of an audience hall. And really, there's no time. The old Bavarian woman who let some scholar write down the wolves can barely bring them back into the story in time to condemn their mother to death for sending them into the forest when they were born. It takes only so long to make porridge, to card wool, to shuck peas, to worry about her daughter. The story has to be over before the work is over. The point is, men will conspire to win. The point is, women are sacrifices. The point is, take the bread off the coals before it burns. You can't leave a story like this broken off for later. It has to be whole to make any sense. Halfway through this story, the queen's given birth to seven sons in seven days to punish her for an accusation even fairy stories know is false and a maid is carrying seven babies through the woods to be eaten, and in a cave that no one ever sees, the beast sits with its jaws open, waiting for a meal it will never get. Bring them back quick as you can and punish the queen, the sun's going down. Heroic though, those seven sons, any story you find them in, and of course you find them, were taught early of the worth in groups of men who conspire. The oldest one, solemn and sure, but not the darkest eyes, that's the fourth one, the one who has no time for the small-minded girls from their small-minded home. He and the second brother and the youngest sit up at night on the tallest hill they can come by and look at the road until it vanishes. It doesn't matter when the story takes place, really, just that there's a road. Some of them have wagon ruts and point toward the market in the shadow of the king's cathedral. Some are paved black and empty and the brothers tighten their fingers around the grips of their motorcycles. The third brother, the only one who isn't perfect, stands with one hip cocked to hide that one leg shorter than the other. 
The second youngest is the runt of the litter who still has the tenderness of a newborn, soft and young and seamless no matter what work they've done. Farmers, maybe, or mechanics. Grease on his face is like nightfall on the moon. The fifth brother is the angry one. In any age, he handles metal. In any age, he makes the iron shoes. They're cruel, probably. Groups of men tend that way no matter how carefully someone has raised them up from the dirt. They're called the wolves because it's a flattering enough name for something terrifying that the brothers might not notice it's a warning to strangers. But still, the town that sheltered them will weep to see them go. The brothers never think of that town again. They haven't thought of it in years. The first time someone told them they were princes, they were gone. The king and queen walk past a christening, triplets, three at once, showered with petals by the cheering villagers and juggled by an old woman who staggered under the weight of the baskets. Where's the father, the queen asked, wanting to look away from it, desperate to be gone. The mother dead, she had to be with some stranger carrying the children, and the farmer father wandering the churchyard, accepting accolades and sympathy while his wife was dead in the ground, broken by sons. Bile tasted green in her throat. So many children, too many at once, it's a betrayal. Her husband, the king, laughed and took her arm to hold her fast. Stop babbling. Are you accusing a dead woman of adultery? Her husband stands there. He'll hear you. The priest was congratulating him on his children, nodding solemnly. The father wore a black ribbon and a white one, and a jacket gone thin at the elbows. No, the mother, the queen said, at the same time as the king told her, don't say such cruel things. It's your own fault we have nothing if you want children so badly. At home, he dragged her to her mirror and snapped his teeth like a dog and gave her a look like he'd picked the wrong girl out of the dirt. But she tried to point out how sad it was that the mother was missing. She knew the mother had been faithful. You'd have to be to carry children. It was the children who killed her that had broken trust. Women tell each other stories about it. You can't stop women from telling you stories about it. It's a horror as old as the dark and a different monster emerges every time. She had kept her mother sick for seven months, and when her mother couldn't keep down enough food to satisfy her, she had sucked the marrow from her mother's teeth. Her mother only had ten now. They'd crumbled to dust, hollowed out by the parasite she carried. The rest were false, and they would be cruel to look at if her mother ever smiled anymore. You birthed a queen, she wants to say. I kept you safe and rich, and those false teeth are made of ivory. But she'll birth princes and knows there's no comfort there. You drown on your children. She knows. She prepares for a siege. It takes four years for him to get her to agree, but eventually his smiles and that line between his eyes feel like the tip of some ice pick and she doesn't dare. Let him divorce her, she thinks, when she's angry. But his work slows down and her boss starts to ask about family plans and her mother offers to go with her to the doctor or to church or to counseling on the women's place in the home. She realizes with the sensation of dropping off a cliff that she might as well have a child. Someone has to be on her side, and she'll have to start from scratch because the world has already gotten to the rest. She lets it happen. She grits her teeth against it, but she lets it happen. The first time it moves is like a nail in the bed. She picks a name for the child. It takes three weeks, during which he comes home from his office with the two big windows, and they stand together in the room that had been meant for her work and is a nursery now, while he paints and she reads names he hates. I like that one, he says sometimes. She ignores him and keeps reading until she finds one she likes and folds a corner over. He sleeps on the couch for the last week of name selection until he breaks, and she writes two names she wanted down in the journal his mother bought her as a reminder that the child is coming and she will have to be interested in it for the rest of its life. She lets him fuck her for a while until he forgets to resent her. 
It's an even trade, she figures, because sooner or later she won't have to fuck him anymore, but that child's gonna bear the name forever. Pregnancy hormones, he laughs, unfastening his pants, the gazelle told me. It's not for the child's sake she worked so hard for the name. It's not for the child's sake that she eats until she can feel food pressing against the back of her eyelids and her arms float out to the size of loaves of bread and her ankles swell so badly she can only wear mules and the reflection in her mirror would agonize her if she was vain. She eats because if the parasite has no nourishment, it eats its host. She makes sure it has enough to feed on. She gives it room in her stomach, then her rib cage where her lungs start to feel tight five months in and only get smaller. She gives up room for it in the bladder that holds less and less. She picks a name she hopes to care about because it will be her name, appended at teacher conferences and playgroups and anywhere else her husband isn't there for her to be appended to. As soon as the baby breathes, she'll be Christopher's mother. It never stops consuming you, a child, not so long as it lives. Everyone knows how to tame something. You start with a wolf, something sovereign and smart enough to know better, and you wait until it's starving, and then you feed it and teach it to put up with a touch of your hand, and you raise its children and its children's children until their teeth fall out and they gum at your fingers with no pride left, endlessly starving for your kind words in your palm, where they sit on the ground at your feet for the rest of their locked-in lives, and they get so good at it that you name them Familiaris to take the wolf out of even their name, so they have nothing ever again but you. The king was away when the queen gave birth. Seven boys in seven days, red and screaming and hated. Carry them into the forest and feed them to the wolves, she gasped over and over through lungs that had no room left. A maid with sharp eyes bundled them into a basket of laundry and promised to let them be devoured, and as soon as she was gone, the queen burst into tears that shook the bed. Remorse, all the nurses told themselves, picking up the bloody linens. Seventh best, those babies hadn't left much time to appease royal sensibilities, and watching the queen clutch at her heart. It's only fear that's made her do this. She can't be caught out looking unfaithful after all that fuss she made. They all have to go, to be sure. But it's kind that she mourns them now. The queen pressed her hand against her lowest ribs, the ones that had cracked under the endless swelling of them all. With luck, the physicians had told her, they would set tighter toward one another once the child came, so her waist would be pleasingly small. She felt the relieving emptiness of her stomach between her legs, a ruin vacated. Her breasts were heavy with king's milk. Let them die soon, she thought, before they cry out. She had no need of worry. The milk turned to dust before the king ever came home. In the story, the king meets the maid on the road and asks what she's doing, and she shows him the children on their way to be fed to the wolves. How stories fail us without the right teller, with wool to be carded before the cow's milking. What on earth possessed that maid? Was she crying? Was she foolish? Was it triumph? Did loyalty to the king overwhelm her at the last? Had the queen given her one duty too many and the maid wanted only for the queen to suffer? Was the road long enough for her to become afraid of something beyond the understanding of the king and queen? Had the maid had a mother who told her stories too and she hardly minded being run through so long as she didn't have to look a wolf in the eye? The woman by the fire wanted to make her daughter wary of kings. For no other reason would that maid have submitted to the sword. It would have been no work to lie to a king, lying to a man is easy, and manage the work she had promised. The wolf was nearby, so close the king just barely stopped her in time and she knew the way. Wolves and stories are easy to find. The king takes his seven sons from the dead hands of the castle maid and brings them to the village and orders them raised up. 
tall and handsome, long hair shining, eyes on the road that leads to the castle gate. He goes home to his milkless wife and waits for 18 years. How stories fail us. What a pleasant husband he must have been. Distant enough that his wife had space to think, deferential enough not to arouse suspicion among the court that anything was wrong. What a measured monarch he'd have made, building a kingdom worth inheriting as if his wife wouldn't know what it looks like when a king has heirs. What a kind man he must have been all that time. Men always are when they have something to look forward to. But this is a fairy tale where there are more lessons than reasons. The mirror reflected a wolf when the queen came home from church to warn her she would bear them. She must have known the boys would live to revenge themselves. Every day from sunset to darkness, the queen stood at her balcony and waited. She was standing there the evening they came back after 18 years and seven days, racing horses in a cloud of dust along the road that led from the village. She must have known who they were the moment she saw them. She must have known for 18 years and seven days that her children would walk through the doors and consume her. Seven sons. One at a time, she loses to those beating heart swellings that leave an abscess, that suck on your breasts and then forget the sound of your voice. Children never listen, they're wolves. The questions that make you hope they choke on their tongues, the toys that pierce your feet and the screams that pierce your ears. Seven sons and she feels every moment that she should have stopped it somehow, tied her tubes, thrown herself down the stairs, spit in the aisle of their church until the priest disowned them and she could start walking and not stop until traffic hit her. But whenever she tried to do any of them, it was with the futile force of a dream, where you open your mouth to warn yourself, but nothing comes out, and you keep moving the way the dream has laid before you because you know you'll never wake up. She ceded the office long ago to the wailing babies. Then they engulfed the guest room, the basement. Maybe someday, he says about a bigger house when she confronts him, but houses are expensive and we only have one income now. And when he sees her face, even he must be embarrassed because he changes it to, uh, later they'll be so big, we'll cherish the memory of all being together like this. And her face must not change much because he curses under his breath and leaves. It's no loss, really, the guest room in the basement. Her mother can't come this year anyway. Her mother can't ever come to help. She can only offer wrong advice and tell her she's selfish when she complains and ask her photos every day. There's no help. Who could help her with so many sons except someone who would take them and run? The baby sits in a bassinet at the foot of their bed, so not even her dreams are quiet, and she'd stay awake watching television, except the children broke an armrest on the couch. On her side, they know better than to ruin anything of their father's, and it makes her want to grab the nearest thing and slam it into the wall. One day, the formal dining room that has two doors she could close on them becomes a playroom. She can't remember if she agreed or if their father just had a bright idea, but her anger about it is the anger of a dream, too, where no matter how much your skin itches from the insects laying eggs inside you, you can't make a noise. Not like anyone would hear it with all the children who drag at her fingers and yell to be fed and laugh when her husband laughs at what a mess the house is, at how peevish she looks. He doesn't care how she looks. He's been sleeping with someone else since the fourth son. She hopes he'll file for divorce. She'll get herself admitted to a hospital so the children can't follow her and will swallow any pill they give her for the rest of her life, a handful at a time if they're trying to kill her. She doesn't care, so long as she's alone. He gets angry with her for staying mad at him. He watches TV at night, so he's used to husbands being forgiven in 22 minutes. She'd maybe forgive him if she could close the dining room doors and think it over. Her seven sons won't stop breathing. She spent a summer at camp once when she was 10, and mosquitoes hovered over her face every time she lay down, and all she could dream of was them laying their eggs and the larva crawling out of her ear. 
She got too paranoid to sleep because every time she closed her eyes, they found her. The camp sent her home after a week because she hit another camper with a tennis racket. Exhaustion, they said. When her children cry, she sobs until her husband gets out of bed to tend them and she doesn't care how angry it makes him because he's a stranger to them and they might listen. She knows she would pick up the heaviest toy in the room and swing. She's 38, baffling, impossible, how much of her life has she lost, and there are seven sons. Her husband says he's house hunting for something bigger. He's fucking the real estate agent, so it's slow going. But sometimes he brings home a flyer from a viewing. A five-bedroom charmer so far away from their school and their friends that she'll spend the rest of her life in the station wagon. A house with a yard so small she'll have to enroll the older ones in soccer and baseball and place oranges on game day and stand next to the other mothers and pretend she doesn't want to run them over. <laughs> You're making this goddamn difficult, he says. I thought you wanted a new house. She doesn't sleep much anymore. The one at the foot of the bed claws at her breast twice a night, the soft, sleek hair at the back of his head like a spider's leg. The oldest one won't stop telling her that all his friends think boys are better than girls and how lucky he is to be a boy. Thanks, Mom, he says with a smile every time. And she wants to hold his faith in the bathwater until the waves stop and he'll never say it again. Christopher's mom says the envelope from school with the field trip instructions on it. They need chaperones. Well, I can't do it, her husband says. This presentation's kicking my ass, honey, and this is really your thing. Come on, you know. She was sick for four months with Christopher. Her body tried to rid itself of the foreign object every day for four months until it got too weary to resist and let the thing have its way with her. Like pushing a kid under the wheels of the bus, she thinks, on the way home from the field trip, wherever it was that they went. You fight the idea for a long time until you're too tired to do it, and that's how any child gets to grow old. <laughs> Five kids are shrieking in the back of the bus. Something lands near her head. She checks to see if her nose is bleeding. The queen stood in the tower looking out over the kingdom. Her hands were on her stomach. She was looking for her children. She had seemed incomplete for the last five months of the pregnancy, heaving, pitied. A woman is complete, and a woman and a child. But when you're pregnant, everybody knows you don't yet have what you want. Expectation, cannibalism. In the churchyard, the former father and the priest were digging a grave. Only one of the triplets had died, a merciful winter. Her children would all live, that's how these stories go. The ones you hate always prosper until the very end when you find out whether or not you're the villain. They were seven years old then, all the way up to seven years and seven days. They can consume you even when you don't want to. You can still know they're breathing. Somewhere, perhaps in the village where the prince had found her, they were growing up and someone was telling them their mother hated them and it was all perfectly true. She was frightened looking out from the window of the tower. Who isn't frightened when they think how death is coming? But it was steadying to think that she would die for an honest reason. It was good to think she'd have these years alone, these long and quiet years. In this story, at the grand feast when the wolves appear, when the king asks the queen what punishment awaits a woman who abandons her children, she tells him such an unfaithful mother should be danced to death. Of course she does. He's been open about his tastes since that day in the saddle. She knows what he's planning. His eyes have sparkled for six months. The forge goes all night, practicing shoes. It's all right. She's practiced her dancing. A tame hand and a cage are very different. The first she's never bent to, the other carries no shame. Lupus, 
she thinks, when her seven sons walk in the door, sulking and vicious and already tame. The last glimpse the wolves have of their mother is her smile. Someone at the bank asks for her name. She says, Christopher's mom, without thinking, and when the teller's still waiting, she forgets for ten full seconds what else she can tell him to prove who she is. I have to get out of here, she tells their father at home, so hard it startles him. What about the beach? Mosquitoes, she says. He says, sand's free. She keeps her eyes open all night and thinks about waves. Someday, iron shoes. Eventually, children. Thank you. <laughs> or don't. Anyway, thank you very much. Hang out. You're welcome to hang out around here. You're going to stay and have another drink, and we'll see you next month. And buy some more books. I don't have any books left. Buy some books, bring them back, have them sign them. Thank you. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.